Congressional gridlock continues. Liberals and conservatives line up for an ideological battle over the Supreme Court. In the political arena, demonizing smear campaigns, character assassinations, whisper campaigns, and opposition research are in high gear heading towards the midterm elections this fall. The nation appears to be deeply and perpetually divided. What is the cause? And more importantly, what is the solution? On this week's episode of Therefore What? Therefore What is a weekly podcast that breaks down the news while breaking down barriers, challenges you in the status quo, explores timely topics and timeless principles, and leaves you confident to face what's next. I'm Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News, and this is Therefore What. I want to hit this week something that has been on my mind for a long time. It's something that I struggled with when I was a chief of staff back in Washington, D.C. I saw it as a business consultant around the world. Uh, I see it uh, in all of our politics and posturing today, and that is that so many people don't even know what they're for anymore. It's what we're against. We've become defined as a society by what we're against. In fact, it's really interesting. There was a, a recent survey on the website 538 that showed that over over 40 percent, over 40 percent of both Democrats and Republicans belong to their political party because they oppose the other party's values rather than because they are particularly aligned with their own party. So think about that. You have over 40 percent of Democrats and Republicans who the only reason they are in a political party is because they are against what the other party stands for. That's the problem. That's what's preventing us to real having the real conversations we need to as a nation, to have the conversations that are going to help us move forward and solve problems. Uh, I saw this over and over again in, in Washington, D.C. What are you against? What are you against? Uh, I'm a person who passionately believes that we could solve 94.5% of the immigration issue in an afternoon on the floor of the United States House and the United States Senate. Why? Because everyone agrees. Everyone agrees. Everyone knows we need a border. We need to have border security. Everyone agrees we need to have a better entry and exit system into the country so that we can know who comes in and we can know who leaves. I mean, my goodness, if Disney can tell me where my family is anywhere in the park over a three-day period, surely the government of the United States of America can figure out who comes in the country and who leaves the country. Everyone agrees we need to have better solutions for uh, H-1B visas and, and so on. It's not that hard, but it's what we're against. And so you have have both of the political sides who, by the way, raise millions, hundreds of millions of dollars every year using immigration as a wedge issue. Because surely if you are a Republican, the Democrats will say, well, you have no compassion. You have no heart. You don't care about people. And if you're a Republican, you're going to say, well, the Democrats are against the rule of law and our borders that actually make us a country. And so they create all of this angst and fear and anxiety and they raise money. And what does that do? It ensures that we maintain the status quo. Uh, the biggest shocker to me going back to Washington was that most of the battles left in Washington, D.C. are not left and right. It's not about Democrats and Republicans. It's about the people in power against everyone else. And the lengths that the leaders of both political parties would go to so that no one in Congress has to take a difficult vote. That's the problem. Because we can solve these things. But we have to be for things, not just 
just against things if we're ever going to have that conversation. Uh, I'll never forget in my my first year as chief of staff, it was the big, everyone remembers the fiscal cliff, that if Congress did not get their act together and pass the right tax reform, that it was going to be Armageddon on New Year's Day. And for an entire year, Congress knew they had to fix this problem. But the spring came and went and they said, well, we'll, we'll get to it, you know, early summer and then summer came and we'll get to it after the August recess and then it was Labor Day and then hopefully we'll get it done before Thanksgiving and then maybe by Christmas. Well, we had to be called back to Washington the day after Christmas because nothing had been done other than fundraising (laughs) by both of the political parties. And so this big Armageddon moment where everything was going to collapse and the world as we know it was going to end and nothing had been done. And so finally, New Year's Eve came. There was no bill. There was no bill text for anyone to read or assess or evaluate or debate or comment on. And finally, as New Year's Eve rolled along, Senator Lee and I, since we were there without our families, we, we sent all the staff on to their New Year's Eve parties. said, we'll call you back if we ever see anything and if we ever get to debate and amend and vote on this thing. And nothing happened. Senator Lee and I sat there in the office and we watched the ball drop. And we decided that we should uh, do a little bit of celebrating. And we we remembered that there is a frozen ice cream machine down in the basement of the United States Capitol. And then we both realized that neither of us had any money. (laughs) So we literally had to go around to the staff desks and put little IOUs for (laughs) a few quarters here and a few quarters there. Uh, Finally, we, we went down into the basement. We're plopping our quarters into the machine. And one of the big burly security guards with the big gun comes over and, and says, excuse me, gentlemen, are, are you sure you want that to be the first thing you eat in the new year? Uh, and I thought maybe my wife, Debbie, was watching on closed circuit uh, C-SPAN TV. Uh, and we should have listened to the to the guard uh, because the ice cream had melted and frozen and melted and frozen. So it was just that ooey gooey, awful stuff. Anyway, we waited. We still had no bill. Finally, at 1.36 a.m., we got a notification that the bill was ready. It was 156 seven pages long. We started to print it out so we could start to mark it up and and look at what was actually in the bill. Six minutes later, the bell rang. And what the bell means is you now have 15 minutes to get over to the Capitol and cast your vote. We had only printed about 20 pages. So we grabbed the pages we had printed. We, the senator was trying to read as we walked over to the Capitol. Uh, and this is not easy reading. This is not like a Harry Potter book. Uh, this is uh, text from tax reform stuff. This is heavy-duty reading. So we got to the floor of the Senate at 1.42 a.m. And to our shock and horror and dismay, 92 senators had already cast their vote in support of the, of the bill. No one had read it. No one understood it. And of course, by the next morning, we realized there were all kinds of crazy things. There were millions of dollars as a subsidy for Jamaican rum. There were millions of dollars to patch the roadway at Talladega Speedway in Florida and a host of other Christmas tree giveaways uh, that Congress likes to do to their friends back home. And this is the problem. This is what happens when we're simply against things to the point that everything is stagnant. You see, dictators have used that kind of division as a strategy for millennia. You convince the people that you're just too divided to deal with immigration. You're just too divided to deal with tax reform. You're just too divided to confirm a Supreme Court nominee. Because if the country believes it's too divided, it gives members of Congress an excuse to do nothing. And it gives 
gives the president of either political party the excuse to do whatever they want by executive order. And that, my friends, is the way of the swamp. And that is the problem when you don't have a vision of what you're for. And this goes back to the very beginning. You know, if you think back to that original Boston Tea Party, the original Boston Tea Party was really nothing more than a protest against the kind of government that those original colonists did not want. It was a big government, a government that taxed them too much and regulated them too much and was way too intrusive in their lives. So what did they do? They did what Americans always do. They protested. But had they stopped at protest, what we now celebrate as the Boston Tea Party wouldn't even have been a footnote in history. It would have been just one more angry mob shouting at a big, oppressive government. But thank heavens they didn't. Those original colonists marched forward from Boston where they protested against the government they didn't want, and it took them 14 years to get from Boston to Philadelphia, where in 1787 they put down in the Constitution, this is the kind of government we do want. This is our vision of what we are for as a nation. And it made all the difference. And we need that in America today. We cannot survive as a nation by just focusing on where we're different and where we disagree. The only people who win in that scenario are political consultants and people already in power who are trying to hold on to it for way too long. So what's the vision? What's the vision of of what we're for and and how do we actually deal deal with that? Uh, A lot of people complain that in today's world, there's just too much conflict in Washington. Well, I I got news for you. Conflict is not the problem in Washington, D.C. Collusion is the problem in Washington, D.C. You cannot get $20 trillion in debt through conflict. It's impossible. In fact, you can even ask my wife. If I go home tonight and I say, Debbie, you know, I've been thinking, and that's always a red flag for Debbie. She says, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, this is not going to be good. But if I say, I've been thinking, and, and I think what we actually need is a little bit bigger big screen TV. And if we get into conflict about whether or not we should spend that money and go into debt and blow a bigger hole in our budget, if we have conflict about that, we are not buying that TV and we are staying under budget and on path. If, on the other hand, we collude and I say, now, honey, I I know you've really been wanting that that new couch and, and sofa. And if we bundle the couch and sofa with the big screen TV, yes, it will blow a bigger hole in the budget. But I'm confident we can work it out and everything will be fine in a couple years. We'll be good. So if we collude, then we end up making a bad choice and a bad decision. And and that's the challenge. Collusion is the problem in Washington, D.C. And the way they mask the collusion is by convincing us that we're too divided, that we're just against everything. And so we, we have to learn to really transcend that and, and to move forward in a in a very different way with a, a real Philadelphia vision uh, of what we want and where we need to go as, as a country. Uh, I've spent a lot of time working uh, with a good friend of mine, Scott Rasmussen. Many of you will recognize Scott Rasmussen as as one of the premier political pollsters of our time, uh, an incredible mind. Uh, I worked with Scott on his book, and uh, the title is so appropriate for what we're talking about today. Uh, It's called Politics Has Failed, America Will Not. And that is the the truest of of all true statements uh, that we have to recognize that, yes, our our politics has failed, uh, but this country's not going to. Because what we have to remember is in America, the politics politicians have never led, almost never, even back to the beginning. I mean, the Declaration of Independence that we celebrate as an extraordinary document, which it is, but it was not a leading document. It was a lagging document. The Revolutionary War had been going for over 15 months when the politicians got around to 
drafting up the Declaration. So while the, the Declaration was clearly a great galvanizing document for the colonists and, and early Americans, but it was it was a lagging document, not a leading document. And this has been true throughout our history. Uh, very few times have our politicians led. Um, good example, Jackie Robinson, 1947. Jackie Robinson breaks the color barrier in Major League Baseball. A significant day, a big day. 17 years later, 17 years later, Congress finally got around to starting to write some meaningful civil rights legislation. Remember, it's community, it's culture that leads, and the politicians follow. Even simple things. Mother's Day. The woman who started Mother's Day, who only wanted to celebrate her own angel mother, went to members of Congress, presented the idea for Mother's Day, and if you can believe this, the politicians of the day voted against having a Mother's Day. Now, if you're a politician, if the bill has the word mother in it, the vote is yes. It's very, very easy. But they didn't. And they didn't just do it once. Time after time, they just kept voting down Mother's Day until finally this great woman from West Virginia, she said, Congress, I'm giving up on you. I'm going back to West Virginia. And she worked with the West Virginia State Legislature and ultimately passed Mother's Day. So West Virginia was the first state in the nation to have Mother's Day. And then she didn't stop there. Then she went to Connecticut and to Rhode Island and to Massachusetts. And only, only after every single state in the country had passed Mother's Day, then and only then did Congress boldly, courageously step forward and say, we shall have a Mother's Day. So again, remember, it's the culture, it's the community that leads and the politicians follow. And that's what should give us hope because that's going to get us where we actually need to go uh, as a society. Uh, Even thinking of some other things, thinking of the the 1970s were a, a really interesting era. And you can look at all the things that have been written about the 1970s and and you had, you know, crazy inflation going on. You had the Iran hostages going on. Uh, you had all kinds of things that were happening geopolitically and in the business world and in our communities. And in the 70s, something happened that nobody even took a note of. It was not written anywhere. Two guys dropped out of college. Two guys dropped out of college. And now, 40 plus years later, those two guys, Bill Gates and Steve Jobs, have done more to transform not just the country, but the world than all presidents combined. And so, again, we we need to stop looking to Washington to have the Philadelphia vision that we need. It's only going to happen when we start to look to our communities, when we start to look to each other, when we start to take responsibility for what we're doing and how we're doing it. What kinds of conversations are we engaging in? Uh, Are are we getting into the Twitter battles and and, uh, Facebook rants where we just shout at the other side of the aisle because they're dumb, they're stupid, they voted for this person or against that person? Or are we going to take the time to actually formulate, well, what is the Philadelphia vision? What is it that really matters? Uh, Because then and only then will we be able to move the country forward uh, in a way that actually matters. And so so don't be fooled. Don't be fooled by the kind of divisive language that we're going to continue to hear, sadly, because political consultants, uh, you should know, are really all of the green party. As long as the money is green, they will do the dirty work. Uh, and it often prevents us from having the conversations that we that we really need to have. Because uh, it's not about the loud and angry and strident voices. Uh, those voices often just keep us from, from having the conversations that would actually solve the problems for the country. So we have to think different. Uh, we can't settle. We, we have to recognize that, yes, politics has failed, uh, but America will not. And America won't fail because of the kind of people we are, the kind of communities that we live in, and the things that we're actually willing to do. Therefore, what? 
So after all of that, it's very easy to get depressed and a little bit discouraged in terms of where we are. Uh, but as I said before, I've never been more positive and, and more bullish. I'm, I may be pretty negative and pessimistic about where our politicians are and where they might take us. Uh, I think it's back to Boston. But I've never been more bullish on the future of this country because of the Philadelphia vision of the American people. And what we have to recognize is that the, the magic of America is, is not housed in the halls of Congress. It's not in some big monument out there on the square in Washington, D.C. It's not secured in some secure vault somewhere. The magic of America is found within ordinary people who do amazing things every day. Simple things. Things that are far from the spotlight. It's it's a neighbor helping a neighbor in need. It's the teacher that stays late to help a struggling student. It's the, the friend who intently listens to a, a tale of heartbreak or discouragement or depression. It, it's a professional providing free service to, to solve a problem or the community that rallies around the, the family of a deployed soldier. It's the child standing up to a bully for a classmate. These are the heroic citizens. These are the the thread that create the strong neighborhoods and the vibrant communities that really are the fabric of the nation. And so it really comes down to what are we going to do about it? It is the therefore what moment. Will we be that neighbor helping a neighbor? Will we be the one that, that listens to a friend? Will we be the one that reaches out and makes a difference for someone else? The thing we all have to recognize is that the, the future of America is going to be found in in very small and simple daily things. Uh, I often refer to them as kairos moments. So kairos is an interesting word. It has to do with time. But normally when we talk about time, uh, we talk about chronos, like chronological time, sequential time, order. But this is this is different. Kairos is the the opportunity of a lifetime kind of time. And what you do in those moments really makes all the difference. It's the kairos moments. It's that that chance of a lifetime that that little opportunity. It's when you feel that that nudge to to do something nice for your neighbor. It's that uh, little inkling you get that uh, maybe there is a way to to make a difference or to start a cause. Uh, you know, I I was inspired once by something really simple. It was a 1K donut run. So let me say that again. <laughs> 1K. We are not talking about very far. It's about half a street length, and it was all for donuts. But really, what it was it was my neighbor. My neighbor chose to do something. She had a Kairos moment where she decided, you know what, I can rally the neighborhood and we can raise some money for a good cause. And so she did it every year. And and I'll never forget, it was right after the 2016 election. And that was such a turbulent, crazy time. And I remember getting up on that Saturday morning in November, and I was a little bleary eyed and a little exhausted from all of the political rhetoric and all of the things that had gone on in a very tumultuous campaign. And I walked up the street to the grassy bowl in our neighborhood, and there were all these people. And there was just this buzz of energy and excitement. They were going to raise money this year uh, to to help those who had been involved and and victims of sex trafficking. So they were raising money for a great cause. And here it was. We were going to run 1K. I mean, even I can run 1K. (laughs) And for a donut, I could probably run two. Uh, But they only asked us to run one. And it was amazing. I I just watched. There There was no talk of the election. There was no talk of which side of the political aisle had won or lost. It was, we're all here as a community. And I I saw young college students who had just heard about it on social media and showed up and bought a T-shirt and donated to the cause. And they were they were ready to run. Uh, I saw little kids who were excited about what was happening and their chance to be involved in this this great race for donuts. And the interesting thing was 
the the community came together. There were some words from elected officials, and then the big blowhorn went, and the race was on, and it lasted a few minutes. But the amazing thing was that after the race was over, everybody stayed. Everybody stayed for over an hour and just had conversations about things that really matter, family and friends, what was happening in the community, how we could make a difference. And that's what gives me hope in the country, is people who are willing to take advantage of their Kairos moment. They're not big things. So my my therefore what for you this week is do something, do anything, be ready for what we call that little Kairos tap on the shoulder. During World War II, when Winston Churchill was trying to rally his people to a big cause, cause of freedom and liberty, he said something really interesting. He said to every person, there comes that moment when they are figuratively tapped on the shoulder and given the opportunity to do something special, unique to them and fitted to their talent. So Churchill was talking about Kairos moments, those little taps on the shoulders. And I believe we get those taps on the shoulder every day. Again, whether it's to help a neighbor, whether it's to help a colleague at work, whether it's to become involved in a cause, to stand up for a principle, we get those taps on the shoulder. But Churchill cautioned, he said, what a tragedy if that moment finds them unwilling or unprepared for what could have been their finest hour. I'm one of those people who firmly and passionately believes that our finest hours are yet to come. And as we come together with what we are for, not what we're against, as we set aside the political rhetoric and the divisive language of our time and look to the principles, that's when we'll always be ready for those Kairos moments. That's when our communities will get better. That's when our nation will really move forward in a significant way. Well, this is Boyd Matheson, opinion editor at the Deseret News. Thanks for joining us on Therefore What. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your podcasts. Follow us on DeseretNews.com forward slash podcast and subscribe to our newsletter. Don't miss an episode of Therefore What.